We're doing a series on Bible stories, and we're going to read a lot of the Bible today. And uh, I, I said to Laurel, man, we're going to read a lot of verses, like maybe 30 or 40 verses. We're going to read a lot of verses. And she said, well, you can't very well do the Bible stories if you're not reading the verses. <laughs> and so that's what we're going to do today. Um, I would really encourage you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. I'm sorry, it's 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18 is where you're going to want to be. Um, by the way, the picture on the PowerPoint there, that guy on the top of that pedestal on that um, statue with a sword in his hand and his, his foot on a man who's beneath him, that's Elijah the prophet. And uh, it's not really him, it's just a statue of him. And uh, I, I took that picture when I was uh, on Mount Carmel. Uh, when you take a Holy Land trip, uh, you get to go there usually. And uh, that was a great thing. If you ever have an opportunity to do such a thing, I'd encourage you to do so. There's a Bible app event for this message. You can follow along that way if you would like to. And I do want to say this. I want to say that I'm really indebted to D.A. Carson. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's an author, a speaker. Uh, in his sermon, uh, God, The God Who Answers, uh, from 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, many of the thoughts that I'm going to be sharing with you today struck my heart as I kind of drank in that sermon. And I'm not going to preach his sermon, but I'll give you a link to it. If you're like, I kind of like to listen to that sermon, um, I'd be glad to share that link with you. Uh, just let me know if I can give that to you. One of my favorite movies is probably one of your favorite movies as well. It's a classic story of good versus evil. Well, that narrows it down, doesn't it? <laughs> so many movies are a story of good versus evil. This happens to be a gentleman named Wyatt Earp and his brothers with Doc Holliday versus Curly Bill and the Cowboys. You know the name of the movie? Tombstone, right? Yeah, Tombstone. It's a classic story of conflict, of good versus evil, and it draws you right into it. I think we're drawn to movies of that ilk, uh, good versus evil kind of movies, maybe because we know those stories are real. I didn't say they were true. I don't think that all the events that are detailed in the movie Tombstone actually happened in Tombstone, Arizona. I'm not saying that that movie is a genuine account of the history. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that stories of good and evil feel real because they're woven into the fabric of our existence in this fallen world. We experience good and evil. We sense it around us. We notice it. And today's Bible story is one such story, good versus evil. We're going to be reading from 1 Kings 18 in a little bit, but I want to talk to you ahead of time if I can. And I want to just remind you that the Bible teaches there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and it's a kingdom of light. It's a kingdom of goodness. Power corrupts, the saying goes. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, unless that absolute power is incorruptible. And the king in the kingdom of God is incorruptible. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom of light. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. The entirety of the kingdom is summed up by Jesus in Matthew 22, where in verse 37, it says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the kingdom is enclosed in those two commandments. Love God, love others. And in case you didn't know it, the kingdom of God is for you and for me. 
It is the place that we fit. You cannot put a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't fit. But a round peg would fit in that round hole. And you and I, when we come to Christ, when we express our awareness of our own sin and confess it to him, and when we trust his death on the cross on our behalf, we fit in the kingdom of God. It is the place for us. In contrast to that, the second kingdom is a kingdom of darkness. In our passage today, in our passage, we meet this couple named Ahab and Jezebel. You don't want to have them over for dinner. That wouldn't be a good thing. Although the dogs did have Jezebel for dinner at the end of the story. Oh, that was such a bad pun, wasn't it? (laughs) Sorry about that. You don't have to turn to a lot of these passages. I'll read them. I'll put them on the screen. They're in the Bible app. You can see them that way. Back in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, in verse 31, the scripture speaks of Ahab. Just listen to what it says about him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebad, which were some pretty bad sins. He not only considered it trivial to commit those sins, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him, worshiping Baal. The kingdom of darkness involves worshiping the wrong thing. It involves false worship. Jezebel was a problem because she came from a problem family. Her dad is mentioned there by name, Ethbaal. That means man of Baal. He wasn't a man of God. He was a man of Baal or Baal. And Baal was an idol. He was not just the king of the Sidonians. He was a priest, maybe the chief priest in the Sidonian Babylon, or I'm sorry, in Baal's temple among the Sidonians. So King Ahab, he really kind of paved the way to breaking a few commandments. Can you think of a couple he's broken? We just did the Ten Commandments. Well, he broke the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. He's got Baal. And commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not bow down to them and worship them. Hmm. Wow. Ahab and Jezebel. They brought worship, false worship, to full force. The scripture tells us that in Israel, in the promised land, in the kingdom of God, they erected two temples, one to Asherah, and there were 400 priests working in that temple. How big is a temple with 400 priests in? And then they erected one to Baal as well with 450 priests. Can you see that darkness has come to the kingdom of God? And can you see that darkness involves false worship? It also involves false witness. We're not going to read this, but you know we went back to chapter 16 from 18. If in your mind you just go forward to chapter 21, you see where this king of Israel, Ahab, kind of has his eyes on a vineyard that belongs to a gentleman named Naboth. And so he tried to buy it. He said, I'd like to buy your vineyard. And Naboth says, no, I can't sell it to you. Naboth isn't just being stingy. He's not just holding out for more money. He's not just being, you know, it's mine. You can't have it. It would have actually been a violation of God's law for him to, to yield the land of his ancestors, of his tribe, to another tribe. And so he turned down the offer. And Ahab, he's kind of spineless. He pouted. The Bible says he pouted. He went to bed. He just said, and his wife Jezebel says, what's going on, man? What's wrong with you? He explained. And so Jezebel enacted a plan. 
She's going to set Naboth up. She's going to have this feast. She's going to have him sitting at a table among many, many other people. She's going to position right across from him two scoundrels who are going to lie about him. Let me just read you two verses from chapter 21. Then two scoundrels came, sat opposite, and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. He didn't. They're lying, but they're saying it. And everything must be proven by two witnesses. The next sentence, so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. I just heard the sound of a couple more commandments breaking. Did you hear it? There's this commandment number 10. Don't covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his vineyard. And then there's this commandment number six. Thou shalt not murder, right? And and there's a commandment number eight. Don't steal. That doesn't belong to you, Jezebel. And commandment number nine. Don't give false testimony. Like those two scoundrels said. I, I want to say, with Ahab and Jezebel in charge, the kingdom of darkness is on a roll. I mean, it is just in control. It is large and in charge. We can't forget that darkness involves false love. False love. You know, Baal worship, it's incredibly popular. When you're reading through the Old Testament all the time, they just want to worship Baal. They want to worship Baal. And I was probably an adult before I got it. Why? <laughs> Baal is a fertility cult. And a fertility cult almost always involves sexual promiscuity, physical intimacy without any strings, without the commitment of love. And that leaves people empty inside. And you know what else it does? It violates another commandment. You shall not commit adultery. At least the spirit thereof is violated in Baal worship. Man, you know, Ahab and Jezebel, they broke a whole screen full of commandments without even breaking a sweat. Yeah, darkness. It is on fire in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God in Scripture is portrayed in a couple different ways. It's portrayed in the ultimate sense, like God is king, he is sovereign over all. When I say that word sovereign, I mean he's control of everything. He's in charge of everything. Not even, you know, an apple falls from a tree and hits Newton on the head. that he doesn't notice that, you know? And, and, and even orchestrate that to some degree. And the scripture speaks of that. For example, in Psalm 115 verse 3, the scripture says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever pleases him. He's sovereign. And Job, toward the end of the book of Job, in chapter 42, verse 2, he says, I know, speaking to God, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Ultimately, God is sovereign over all. But in the kingdom of God, as we experience it, the kingdom of God seems to rule in a limited kind of sense. And first, and probably most importantly for you to hear, it's limited by God's choice. No one's grabbing a hold of God's arm and twisting it behind his back and saying, don't do that. Don't mess with that. He chooses to limit his sovereignty in some ways. Let me give you an example from Romans chapter 1. There are numerous times in this passage, and numerous times in Scripture, but numerous times in this passage, where God seems to let people do whatever they want to do. 
He could stop them, but he doesn't. He gives them over, so to speak, to their evil desires. For example, in Romans 1.24, the scripture says, therefore God gave them over, and that's a phrase to keep an eye on, to, let me read it again. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God could have stopped that. But he allowed human beings to do what they wanted to do. He chose to limit his kingly absolute sovereignty. Two verses later, in verse 28, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. God could have stopped that, but he allowed human beings to do what they wanted to do. He chose to limit his kingly absolute sovereignty. Two verses later, in 128, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. God could have stopped that, but he allowed human beings to do what they wanted to do. He chose to limit his kingly absolute authority. Are you getting that point? I've said it three times now, right? And yet in spite of this, and this is what's really cool, in spite of this, The kingdom of God is growing like a weed, (laughs) better like a plant, better like a mustard tree. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. It's growing. It's coming. We're part of that. The things we do, but perhaps more importantly, the things we pray, thy kingdom come, we pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom that we live in, the kingdom of God, tends to be like this. A kingdom where God limits his absolute kingly authority, but it's still working and still growing. So with that kind of groundwork, I want to look at 1 Kings chapter 18. I want to talk about living in the kingdom from the example of a couple of the people that we see here. And the first thing I want to to bring to your attention is that living in the kingdom may call for a hidden faithfulness. We're going to spend some time in chapter 18, starting in verse 1. And we're actually picking up the story a couple years after Elijah has caused the rain to stop. The, the, the kingdom of God had become very dark and Ahab was doing bad things. And three years before this, about three years before this, Elijah said, no more, wor- no more rain except by my word. And so there's a great famine happening when we enter the story. So if your Bibles are open to 1 Kings 18 or if your Bible app is there, going to begin at verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was so severe in Samaria. It was severe in Samaria. And Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophet, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each. And he supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive 
so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in the other. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and says, is it really you, my Lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master that Elijah is here. Now, Elijah's been AWOL. You don't walk up to the king and say, except by my word, there'll be no rain, and then the rain stop and the king's not looking for you. And so he's been in hiding himself. And now he's appeared because the Lord has told him to. Obadiah during this time has had a really important ministry. He is secretly, in a hidden way, being faithful to God by providing shelter, providing food, and providing water for prophets that Ahab and Jezebel would just as soon have killed. And that places Obadiah in danger to begin with. The man for over two years has been walking on thin ice and and working to make sure that these prophets are kept alive. And now, when Elijah shows up, he's got to be thinking, man, if I go and tell the king I found Elijah, he's going to think I've known where he is the whole time. And I may be killed. He's afraid that if he tells Ahab he found Elijah, Elijah may actually disappear, and then it'll be even worse for him. So in verse 13, skip down to there, and read what he says to Elijah. He says, haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He'll kill me. Elijah said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Think about Obadiah's faithfulness. Think about Elijah's faithfulness. If you know the story, you know they're radically different. Because in just a moment, we're going to see that Elijah's, his faithfulness will be very confrontational. He's going to call out the prophets of Baal. Obadiah, on the other hand, he really can't afford to be confrontational. Because if he were, he wouldn't just lose his life. He would lose the ability to care who's going to feed those prophets. Who's going to make sure they have water if I'm dead? There are times to be confrontational. There are times for hidden faithfulness. I can remember I spent a decade doing ministry at the university, the University of Pittsburgh. I was a campus pastor at Pitt Bradford. First meeting I went to, the Assembly of God pastor had been doing that ministry for a few years, and he said, I have one order of business. I'm resigning right now, and I'm appointing Steve to replace me. (laughs) And I just met him five minutes earlier. And 10 years later, I moved here. I did that for 10 years. That 10-year period of time, sometimes zealous students would join us. And they would want to challenge the campus administration on various things. They would want to, to present things in a very confrontational way. They wanted to challenge Planned Parenthood and, and things like that. They would want to fight the administration on things. And it didn't take long at all to realize that if we do that, we're going to lose our chance to minister to the students. It was a hard call. But it's really hard to minister to students when you're not allowed on campus. <laughs> it really is. Faithfulness looks different for different people in different places. Faithfulness in the Ukraine today looks very different than faithfulness in Clearfield County. Faithfulness at Penn State University looks very different than faithfulness at Grove City College. Faithfulness 
in my extended family looks very different than faithfulness in your extended family. And living in the kingdom sometimes calls for hidden faithfulness. But other time, living in the kingdom may call for clear confrontation. Look at how the confrontation unfolds in chapter 18, starting in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab the king went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, troubler of Israel? I love that sentence. I love it. In, in my previous church, there were two bachelors. One of them was 30-something. One of them was 80-something. And when, when Mr. Black would come in the door of the church, <laughs> Mr. Jamison would look at him and say, is that you, O troubler of Israel? They were best friends, you know? These guys aren't best friends. These guys are enemies. One of them loves the kingdom of darkness. The other loves the kingdom of God. Elijah responds with clear confrontation. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, verse 18. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Elijah speaks of who and what is wrong. It's Ahab and his family, and it's their failure to obey God. It's simple rebellion. So in the next verse, Elijah calls for a showdown, okay? Verse 19. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring out, bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Elijah spread word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, how long? Oh wait, let me just make sure you get the point. Here's what's going on. He's calling up all his adversaries. There's 850 of them in leadership, plus the king and the queen against one guy, Elijah. They're on a mountaintop and he's standing there alone and the people of Israel are gathered around as spectators. And he says this, how long, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. By the way, I love how the ESV translates verse 21. Listen to it. And Elijah came near the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Limping. Don't get the idea that these are men that are kind of stroking their beards in an academic kind of way and saying, oh, what do you think? Do you think perhaps that the religion of Baal, is he the true God or is it Yahweh? Is he the one? We must discern these kinds of things. They don't have that kind of, they don't have that kind of clout. These are men whose unwillingness to commit to the one true God of Israel has damaged them deeply. They are not scholars. They are hobblers limping around in their thinking. So Elijah lays out the challenge in the next verse. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, and Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. So they're going to offer a sacrifice, a burning sacrifice. I will prepare the other bull and put it on wood, but will not set fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. And the people said, hey, what you said is good. So Elijah says to prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there's so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but don't light that fire. 
So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there's no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. By the way, that word danced, it's the same thing as limped. <laughs> right? And I can't help but think that the writer, the biblical writer, is probably reminding us of the incompetence that comes to your life when you turn away from the one true God. Hmm. Now, I want to talk to you about Old Testament prophets. I have never really thought that if I was watching the Super Bowl and having a big party, that it would be really cool to have an Old Testament prophet there. You know? I just, had you ever thought of that? Like, yeah, let's have Nathan there. Man, he'd be all over that halftime show, wouldn't he? Like, look at that! Look at that! I just don't know that I want those guys around, right? <laughs> Except maybe Elijah. Because, buddy, he is on his game. Listen to him troll them, okay? It's verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Yeah, these guys are deeply in darkness to a dark kingdom. Verse 29. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah steps up. Elijah says to all the people in verse 30, Come here to me. And they came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. wonder who tore that down. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one, of e- one for each of the tribes descending from Jacob, who, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name will be Israel. And then Elijah does something just so crazy. He stacks the deck against God. <laughs> Verse 32. When the stones he built on the altar in the name of the Lord, with the stones he built on the altar, son of a gun, let me try verse 32 again, okay? With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And then he prays. And his prayer is so simple. It is just so simple. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And God does what he does. Verse 38, then the fire fell and burned the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. That means they fell right on their face. And they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let them get away. And they seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to Kisham Valley and slaughtered there. If that seems a little violent to you, indeed it was. But these were violent times. All the prophets of God had been all slaughtered long before, except for a hundred that Obadiah kept safe and Elijah himself. Living in the kingdom, 
At that moment for Elijah, it required very clear confrontation. Sometimes living in a kingdom requires hidden faithfulness, and you've got to know when to keep your mouth shut. And sometimes living in the kingdom requires clear confrontation. But there's a third lesson from this, and it is this, that always living in the kingdom of God calls for intentional perseverance. You know what perseverance is? It's sticking with it. It's not giving up. It's not wimping out. It's not backing down. It's standing up straight and walking forward under trial, under pressure, in the midst of heat, in the midst of pursuit. Look at the very next chapter, chapter 19. We're just going to read eight verses from that. It begins this way. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah has done. And I got to tell you, when I think of this, I think this is a guy that's the whiner, right? He's the guy that pouted when he couldn't get the vineyard, right? So I think he probably went to Jezebel, his wife, and said, you're not going to believe, you're not going to believe what Elijah did, right? Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Hmm. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. That's the desert. He came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Living in the kingdom of God calls for intentional perseverance. Even when you feel like giving up, even when you feel frightened, even when you feel like cashing it in, living in the kingdom of God always calls for perseverance. I want to read some words from Carson's sermon that he preached almost 20 years ago. It was 2003 he preached this. Listen to these words. In this fallen, broken world, there is no utopia until the very end. Almost every political party overpromises in order to get elected. And the true believers in that party think if only their platform can be put into place, maybe we can reintroduce a utopia to this nation. And sometimes ministers of the gospel fall into the same pattern. And I would add this, sometimes any Christian can fall into that same pattern. If we only do things exactly right, then there will be such a great reformation and revival that the whole world will be evangelized And then things will just go swimmingly. (laughs) What does Jesus say? There will be wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It is not as if God may not in his mercy bring about great times of reformation and revival. It is not as if God does not bring down catastrophic and humbling judgment, but be certain of this. Until the Lord comes, there is no utopia. 
And therefore, what is demanded of all of us, what is demanded by the absolute claims of the kingdom of God is perseverant faithfulness. The time is coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Until then, you persevere. I persevere. Perseverant faithfulness. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to pray that you will have wisdom to engage hidden faithfulness when that is called for. And you will have courage to embrace clear confrontation when that is what is demanded. And you will have and you will have perseverance to await for the time when the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Look at that verse on the PowerPoint. I have NIV 2011 there, but I typed the King James. <laughs> because I love those words in the King James. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we act in, let me pray. <laughs> let me pray. I was getting redundant. Don't you hate it when I do that? Don't say amen to that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we have wisdom to act in hidden faithfulness when that is the, the need. May we have courage for clear confrontation when you call us to that. May we have a mindset for intentional perseverance until the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and of, and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. As we celebrate communion, we look forward to that. And we act in faithfulness until then. Amen. So I hope you picked up a communion cup. If you didn't, you might want to scoot out and grab one. It's on the table in the back. I hope you have yours at home as well. Scripture says that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd broken it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body, which is for you. The question that should always be before you in life, but especially as you're taking communion, is twofold. Number one, have I received Christ as my Savior? Have I come to the place in my life where I recognize that I'm blowing it? Not that I have blown it. I recognize that, but I'm still blowing it. I'm still sinning. And if something doesn't doesn't act in my life, I will face the consequences of those sin for eternity. You come to the point where you realize that and then you realize Jesus paid it all. And this blood, this cup, and this, and this cracker, this body, remind you of his death for you. Second, as you come to communion, you come to just do a check on your own self. Am I walking with God? Am I walking in faithfulness in the kingdom? I'm going to give you just a moment to do that kind of self-check by the Holy Spirit speaking in your life. So if you would, just in the quietness of this moment, speak to God and say, God, I want to follow you. Is there anything you'd like to tell me? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your sacrifice for us. (laughs) You are the only God who sheds his blood rather than demanding our blood. We can come to you in prayer. We don't have to cut ourselves with swords and spears. 
so that the blood flows, for the blood flowed freely on Calvary. I pray for each one that's here, wherever they are with you, that they will turn their hearts toward you even more and they will walk after you as they trust you. This is our prayer, and we pray it together in Christ's name. Amen. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, this is my body. And I would like to ask whichever elder has the microphone to pray a prayer. Where is the microphone? There it is. To pray a prayer of thanks, and then Josh, you can pass that mic on. A prayer of thanks for the bread, and then we'll take it together. Josh? Lord God, we thank you for these moments of communion where we take a breath and we stop and we think and we push aside all the distractions and we make ourselves aware of our need for you. Jesus, we thank you for your body. We thank you that you loved us in a way that is, uh, that is not replicated in any human relationship. Because all human relationships have weaknesses in them. They fall apart. But you don't. You're the same God eternally past to eternally future. We, we celebrate that now. And as we, as we have and to some degree continue to limp around, just like, just like the uh, characters in the story, God, you see us in that need and you come alongside us and you pick us up and you carry us. We thank you, Lord, for loving us that way. I pray, God, for those who are here that don't know you, who are tired of limping. Holy Spirit of God, may they see that you're there for them. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Josh, you can pass that mic on if you'd like. The body of Christ. So I mentioned in my prayer how he sheds his blood for us. We don't shed our blood for him, although many have, but not for their forgiveness. The forgiveness and response of the heart of God comes freely from him, unprovoked by our attempts. He gives us his grace. That which you hold in your hand, that which you may be struggling to open, (laughs) it represents his blood poured out for us, for the kingdom. Interestingly, he said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm going to ask Eric if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the blood of Christ, and we'll take it together. Lord, we're thankful this morning for this symbol that you have for us. That we're able to honor and glorify you in such a way that we can trust you and remember you. Thank you for washing us in your blood, for the sacrifice that you gave. Lord, we give it all to you. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. We give you our troubled times, and we trust in you. We thank you for being the one true living God. We can throw aside all of those things, all of those lowercase g gods. And we can look to you. We can honor you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless us, that we would be obedient, 
that we would turn our backs on the sins. That our praise would be to you. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord, for the blood that was shed, for the giving of your son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The blood of Christ. When I saw the final song that was picked this week, I thought, what a, what a perfect song to end with. What a friend we have in Jesus. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll sing it. This is a song we know. Yeah. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear.